Oh, you like my shoe game? That's awkward because no one online heard your question, so we're going to act like that didn't happen. She likes my shoes today. Great, great. Okay, so here we are, guys. We're at the end of another summer series. And if you're new around here, you may not know what that means. We barely survived these. I have been told, these are quotes, I've been told in various other summer series in previous years, you got to quit, you're killing the church. That was a quote. I've been told, you can't talk about that. No one will be here in the fall if you keep talking about that. Or I've heard, it's just too much. Nobody wants to think that hard. I've heard all those, those are quotes. So to make it to the end of a summer series alive is something. We made it. We made it. The hat didn't make it, but we made it. This is just to show you, this is, this is my concession to Rabbi Blumhoff that he gets to wear the open road next week. You got to clear some style way, clear a style path for someone to come in so that he looks spectacular in his hat. He doesn't have very good hair, but anyway, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to concede the hat to him. So I won't be wearing a hat today and this is the first time ever. So I can't preach without a hat. So we'll figure out how, how, to, how to make this work. But anyway, next week will be Rabbi Blumhoff. I'm very jealous that I won't be here for that. Considered rebooking a trip to come back just to see it. But I think It'll be the best if just he and Trey tackle it. You guys, you don't want to miss that. So we've over-announced that. And then after that, after next week, school is back in session, which means we've rolled up and smoked another summer. And all the puns that you can pack in there are designed to be in there. It's been hotter than hell down here. 50 days of triple digits, right? Brett's thinking like Denver's looking good again all of a sudden. Yeah. But we've made it through. And I made it, had to make an executive decision this week. I may make about one of those a year to throw overboard, to jettison the story of Samson and Delilah. It didn't fit with the schedule because we want to get to the rabbi when he's got the free time and then we're going to use that to bookend or to put a bow on, this, on the journey and we'll do that perfectly right as we go into the school year. Plus, I don't know a ton about Samson and Delilah. I don't know. Is it possible that a super buff gym rat dude who had a super soft spot for lovely foreign women did knock down a whole theater and killed all the Philistines present? I guess it's possible. I guess archaeologically, one of the things we do know about the Philistines is that they did build these interesting theaters with two center colonnades. So is it possible? It's possible. You could do that reading on your own, but it didn't make the cut. So here we are. So instead, we're going to wrap up our summer series today as we turn our attention to Jonah. And Jonah is one of the minor prophets or one of the, the smaller, in terms of the literary weight they contributed in the, in the Old Testament. He's one of the minor prophets, but he has his own book, consists of four chapters. And you can read that in your, in your spare time. We're going to um, have to abridge that a bit today for the sake of time. But Jonah and the whale is one of the most iconic stories of our faith. All the kids know it. It's something that we, we that it's just in our consciousness. And naturally, like all of the rest of the stories that we've been talking about all summer, it doesn't belong to us. This is a Jewish story, a very old ancient Jewish story. And like so many characters of that sacred text, the original stories, Jonah turns up in all three traditions, Jewish, Islamic, and Christian, like Moses and like Abraham. They turn, that should tell us something. It turns up in all three of the great monotheistic world religions that were produced at that time from that part of the world. But we, the Christians, we are the ones who are uniquely obsessed with the literalism and the every little detail of this story. And so we're going to play with that a little bit this morning. But before we do, who's got the mic? Jake, you got the mic. Let's grab these. And the reason that we wait to talk into the mic is so that people out of town can hear what the questions are. Otherwise, this is all confusing and they'll just pop over to watch Joel Osteen instead because they were going to do that anyway. They absolutely were not going to do that anyway. But anyway. So before we get any further, let me hear from you. What have you heard about the story of Jonah and the whale? Jonah and the great fish. What do we know? What do you know? Get ready to run, Jacob. If I do this, that means you'll do this. Yes, Tara, all the way up here. I'm going to burn some calories today. Hold your thought. It's so hard for Tara to wait. It's so hard. No? Yeah. 
he was asked to go save a group of people. He didn't want to do it, so he got on a boat, got thrown off, swallowed by a whale, came back up. Although we were told it really wasn't a whale because whale couldn't really swallow him, so it had to be a bigger fish than had that. to be a large fish, yeah. a large bass, a largemouth bass, like they got in Mississippi or wherever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's basically the whole story. Thank you for wrecking the sun, Sunday morning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else do we know? I love it. What else do we know? Back here, back here. The newlywed, right? All good revelation comes from being recently married. You didn't have to go there, Jack. That's only your mind went there. Yes. Jonah was running away from God. That's part right. Part of the reason that he didn't want to save the people. He was running away from God. That's right, right. And that's okay, why so God made him get swallowed. Right, okay, so that's what we, we know that he was told to go do something he didn't want to do, so he went the wrong direction, and that's where the fish comes in. What else do we know? Up here, all the way up here? We're just making you work, Jacob. That's good. It's leg day anyway. <laughs> um, then he got spit out on the third day from being in the fish, right. and he went to Nineveh, and uh, he told them that God did love him, and he ran away because he didn't want to be, to have to tell them that God did still love them. Got it. Yeah, you're, you're right on the trajectory of the actual story. Good stuff. What else? What else do we have? Anybody want to add back here, way in the back? There's always somebody in the back. What do we know? Um, if memory serves, it kind of ends weird, the book. He's like watching, waiting for the city to be destroyed, and it's not, and he's very upset, and then yep. there's like a plant, right? Yep. And he gets mad about the plant. Yep. dying, more mad than all the people that he was hoping would die. Yep. And then it just kind of ends. There's not like the bow at the end. It's like, and then he repented, right? And everyone was happy. And just kind yep. of... Yeah, it does not end like the VeggieTales story, in case, you, in case that's your biblical worldview, which, I mean, you could do worse, but you could certainly do better. Yeah, it ends really abruptly. It's a very awkward ending. We'll, we'll touch on that. Yes? I've noticed that he didn't have the courage to jump off the boat by himself. Uh-huh. He asked the sailors to throw him off. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. Like, just dive, dude. No, no, y'all have to throw me. This is, this is amazing, yeah. What else? Okay, let me just ask it this way, because um, we have a couple extra seconds here. What is, pun intended, what is totally difficult to swallow about this story, other than the prophet? What's hard to swallow here? You probably figured it out at age nine, and you're like, mm, what's hard to swallow? Just name it. Come on, mic up here. Whoa, whoa, internet people are waiting. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Michigan and Ohio will be happy we, we waited. What's, what's hard to swallow? For me, it's just that God would love these people. Ah, oh, that God would love the Ninevites? Yep. Wow. Okay, that's good. That was also hard for Jonah to swallow, which is why he was swallowed, perhaps. <laughs> what other thing is hard to swallow here? Anyone else? Yes, over here. I love, this is perfectly cute, going back and forth just to, just to make him sweat. Yeah. Um, it's hard to swallow that he survived. Mm. Like, he didn't die. Inside the fish? Yeah. Yeah, well, some people I say he died and that. was resurrected. Some people say the fish died because it regretted what it swallowed. You know, there's lots of talk about these things. Okay. All right. You can sit down now. Thank you. Very spectacular job. You, you're way better at that than Trey. So let's read through the basic storyline. It's, it, it's, I'm going to jump and skip in a bridge here and paraphrase because it's four full chapters and we don't have the time. But it comes to us from the book of Jonah. And so it begins this way, just as you guys pointed out. You, bas- you basically know all the, all the right stuff about the story. Although I will tell you that it was a bit of a setup to ask you what we know, because we really don't know much, but these, this is the story as we were told. You, was somebody picking up on the, the play and the word know there? Some of you know how devious I can be. 
Chapter 1, verse 1, it reads this way. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying this, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now remember, this is a time when people wrote as if God sat like a drone just out of sight, just above view. So any dirty thing you did that you thought wasn't being observed would eventually waft up to a God who looked, like, sat right over the, the universe this way. That's how they would have seen the world. Anyhow, this wickedness had come up before me, says God. But Jonah set out to flee to Tarshish, which is the opposite direction from the presence of the Lord. And he went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid his fare. Good thing he didn't stow away. And he went on board to go, to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, he's a prophet. He ought to know better, but he didn't. Okay, so let me skip forward here a little bit. As we pointed out, there's a great storm that just... This, just sort of pops up out of nowhere, and the crew begins to call out to every god they could think of. Now remember, don't fault them for having many gods. This was, that was the way things were at the time. So they're offering sacrifices and crying out to every god they can think of. Meanwhile, Jonah goes down to the belly of the ship and takes a nap, and that should be a foreshadow to something that comes up later in the New Testament. Well, the captain finds him there sleeping, and he demands that he get up and offer gifts to his god too in exchange for their lives. They were trying to somehow get the gods to calm down and let them live. Well, the crew begins to interrogate this mysterious passenger who they didn't know much about, but they knew that he was heading in the wrong direction. Picking up in verse 9, and it reads like this. This is Jonah's answer when they interrogated, who even are you and what are you doing here? He says, I'm a Hebrew, he replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Well, then the men were even more afraid, and they said to him, what is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. So Jonah gets caught, no pun intended, or pun intended, and he tells them that they should just throw him overboard and save their own lives, which feels somewhat heroic and also a little bit lazy. Moving forward in verse 15. So they picked Jonah up and they threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. But the Lord provided a large fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights. Now, Then Jonah, from inside the belly of the fish, this is all chapter 2, begins to pray and sing a song to Yahweh. And it sounds a lot like other songs in the Old Testament because it is. They've borrowed pieces and inserted it there. And at the end of this song, the fish regurgitates him right out as that last chord resolves on that major chord. He puts him right on the shore of the city of Nineveh, according to the story, which is where he was trying not to be. Picking up in chapter 3, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's walk. He cried out, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God, post-haste apparently. They proclaimed a fast and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. And that's just a way of saying they acknowledged repentance. Now when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he removed his robe, he covered himself in sackcloth, and he sat in ashes. Then he had a proclamation made to Nineveh, and his words make it into our text, and they read this way. By the decree of the king and his nobles, no human or animal, nor herd, nor flock shall taste anything. They shall not feed, they shall not drink water. Humans and animals shall be covered with sackcloth, and they shall cry mightily to God. All shall turn from their evil ways and from the violence that is in their hands. Who knows, God may relent and change his mind. He may turn from his fierce anger so that we do not perish. Those are his words. And then when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So here is a God who inspires an ancient prophet to go say, this city's about to burn to the ground, and then he changes his mind midstream. And I love chapter four because it's so human, and it reads this way, but this was very displeasing to Jonah. Imagine this. This is what you're there for, big guy, 
But this was displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Oh, Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my country? That is, that is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew you are a gracious and a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from punishment. And that's a direct quote of the Psalms that makes it in at later into the text. But he says, I knew you were going to do the right thing. That's why I would just rather die. Verse 3, and now, O Lord, please just take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord says in verse 4, is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out to the city of the city and sat down east of the city, and he made a booth for himself and, uh, there, and he sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what, God w- what would become of the city. Still not convinced that God might yet change his mind and do what Jonah really wanted, which was torch the city to the ground. So he goes and he sets up a spot, and that's essentially the end of the story after a little bit more dialogue. Well, the book end, ends essentially with Jonah saying, with God saying to, no, to, to Jonah in, in no uncertain terms, are you serious? Like, seriously, bro? Like, this is why, this is what this was about, right? And I imagine Jonah with crossed arms. You guys, what a story. This story has everything. Suspense, intrigue, surprise, lots of drama. Jonah is so human in this story, and I'm so glad it's in our text. He's angry at God. He's unwilling to obey. He, all of the details are here. But if you know your literary genres, you should know that this reads more like a parable than an actual historical account of a man's missionary journeys. Why would we know that this is a parable? Well, because plants talk and animals talk and all the characters except one are all doing the ideal thing towards God, right? And because all of this extra hyperbole, we should know that this is never, was never intended to be read as the actual factual account of a man who traveled to a city called Nineveh, although that city did exist. And this, of course, means that we, would, we don't have to sort through the difficult and the particularly unbelievable parts of this in order for us to learn what it's teaching us. There's a way to get to the moral of the story without having to figure out, can a dude really survive in a whale, which is in fresh water, which can't be a whale, which must be a largemouth bass, which makes it a really big bass. You get my point. There's some stuff, there's some unbelievable parts of this. Like, for example, how did he survive in the fish? Is that even physically possible? I know scientists have tried really hard to prove it. Benton Pruitt actually sent me a TikTok this week because my entire view on TikTok is through Trey and Benton. I don't have TikTok, but I have Trey and Benton, so I don't really need TikTok. But a whale swallowed a girl in a kayak. Did anybody see this this week? And everybody wants, oh, maybe the Jonah story can be real. Y'all, just, let's just be careful. Let's just let it go. Anyway, did he survive? Is that physically possible? Or even more importantly, here's the detail that, that sort of messes with my head. How does a really crummy sermon result in the mass conversion of an entire ancient city? This was, by all accounts, one of the primary city, cities of the day. How does a, what is essentially a really crummy message, turn or burn people, you got 40 days, how does that result in mass conversion? Well, one interesting, but in the end, totally unnecessary explanation for the radical conversion of the city goes a little bit something like this. It's been pointed out archaeologically that there was a god of the Philistines named Dagon, and he would have looked like the Starbucks logo, only male on top, right? So a man with a beard and a body of a fish. They had a god that they believed was, was a god of the fish and god of whatever these, these old civilizations, and they called him Dagon. And some people have speculated that the Philip, Philistine god of Dagon was also adopted by the city of Nineveh. And what they say is that at some point, if a huge fish that you revere swims up to shore and pukes out a dude who at this point is probably bleached white from three days of stomach acids, if he starts yelling at you, you're going to listen because your God just puked up a prophet on your shore. Some people say that's what happened. Now, I don't know. That's a pretty interesting thought. It's kind of a neat thought. But I just, in the end, I'm not sure that it's necessary. 
Because in the end, guys, this is a fable, and it's to be read that way. It has all the literary hallmarks of a story told to teach us a moral, not a series of historical details. Besides, this story, in my view, isn't even about Nineveh or their god Dagon. It's about a reluctant prophet and a merciful god named Yahweh who seems to give endless second chances. Second chances to ancient cities, second chances to reluctant prophets, prophets, second chances to sailors who worshipped other gods piloting wooden, wooden ships in the wrong direction. But to say that this is a fable is in no way to diminish its value. I'm going to argue actually the opposite. This is a classic example of an ancient story that is still with us because of the fact that it makes a relevant point still if we can hear it. We'll turn to that in a minute because I think that that might summarize actually in a way the whole series that we have been in. But first, first, if you're a biblical literalism, if you come from a, a worldview of biblical literalism and that's your only navigational tool, your only lens through which to see the Bible, including stories like this one, then you've got a lot of explaining to do here. This is not just one miracle. This is a series of crazy miracles. And I guess that would be your only line of defense if you say this happened exactly as it, as it shows up to us in the text. If you don't have metaphor to reach for or fable or even parable with the moral, then I don't know what else you have to claim except that this was a series of extraordinary miracles. That's possible, I suppose. But here's what they would be. First, God creates a storm. And then he puts a boat and a bunch of people in this storm to try to get someone to listen to him who was fleeing from his presence. And then God calms that storm. And then, of course, there's this fish who apparently is more obedient to God than even his prophet. And then there's this perfectly timed regurgitation right up on the shores of this ancient city that he was trying to avoid. And then, to me, the biggest miracle of them all is this one, that the whole city listens and converts, including their king, which is doubtful that they would have had a king. This is a city, not a kingdom. But anyway, you get the point. And then we have the miracle of this gourd plant that grows up during the night, guys. When do plants grow? They don't grow at night. Not many of them. So we have the miracle of this plant that grows up to give him shade. And then there's the miracle of the worm that eats the root of the plant that it dies immediately. Which, of course, makes the prophet super angry that he just would prefer to die. And that's a lot of miracles for one story. That's fine. It ends with the rebuke. The rebuke of Jonah, who is more concerned about the loss of the shade of his gourd plant than, than, than he was for the loss of the lives of 120,000 citizens of a great city. And the whole book ends with Jonah receiving a terrible rebuke for his childishness. And how this guy ends up in the elite list of prophets of the Old Testament, I will never know. I just hope you ask Rabbi Neil next week. When the mic is open, I want you to ask him. Don't, don't say that I wanted you to do this because it'll feel controlling. But from California, I hope you ask him. I'll be watching. I hope you ask him. Why do you preserve stories that just show such raw detail about such flawed and broken people? Seriously, a prophet who refuses to hear from God? And yet here is what it is. Here we are. Did any of this actually happen? And even if it didn't, what's the point here? Because I'm going to argue that there is one. Now, you guys know me by now. You know that I'm not afraid to admit that portions of our ancient text seem a little bit cartoonish, sometimes full of hyperbole, sometimes misquoted, and sometimes even wrong. But I still believe that the content being covered and the characters being developed and the God that these stories are trying to describe, I still believe it has transcendent value. I do. I'm a believer still. After all this, I'm still a believer. Now, that disappoints some of my humanist friends. They're like, would you just get over it already? But I'm disappointing to the other side too because I'm a full heretic leading a crazy apostate church in South Austin. But I'm, a still, I'm still a believer, you guys. I still believe in this stuff. I'm also... Uh, a student of ancient historical evidence, and I'm also into archaeology. I'm also a literary critic willing to, to, to recognize historical appropriation and syncretism where it turns up, which it turns up everywhere, literally. I have an open mind. It's true. I have an open heart, I hope. Guilty as charged. 
But I'm still a believer in the story of a God and humanity and this ancient people group, this tiny tribe called Israel, who saw something remarkable and they wrote something about it and that's why we have it today. Also, because I'm a mystic by nature, I don't tend to focus on the details. I look at the convergence, the overlap. I want to see what universal pieces of this story, how they can fit to tell the greatest story of all time. And I think actually every story in its own way is telling the same story if we can hear it. But before we settle on what this might teach us as we wrap up this series, we mustn't forget to ask ourselves this question. And I hope by now it's second nature to you when we grab the Old Testament. What is that question? How would the Jews read this story? Long before St. Augustine and the fourth century curse of biblical literalism, how did the faithful make sense of a story like this? Well, the rabbis, to be honest, had a ton of fun with this story over the centuries, and it was a lot of fun to read. I'm just going to give you a few of the points, and this stuff is whimsical, so get ready. This is what they distill from this, these four chapters. According to Rabbi Eleazar, the fish that, was swallowed, that swallowed Jodah was created in the primordial era, and inside of his mouth was exactly like the entrance to a synagogue. And his eyeballs were, were, were light little, little areas where he could see out and observe the world. And there was even a pearl hanging from the innards of the fish that functioned like a crystal ball through which Jonah could see all the happenings of the ancient world. That's one tradition. According to one rabbinical tradition, Jonah was the boy brought back to life by Elijah in the book of 1 Kings. And not to be outdone, since 2 Kings is written later, in another tradition, uh, they claimed that he was the son of the woman from Shunem who was brought back to life by Elisha in 2 Kings. And that he's called the son of Amittai, which means the son of truth, because he recognized that Elisha was greater than Elijah. I mean, that feels interesting, I guess. Then I found this interesting detail that was endlessly fascinating. According to one rabbinical tradition, when the crew of the ship threw Jonah overboard, and they saw that the storm had calmed when Jonah sank to the depths, they immediately threw away their idols, they sailed back to Joppa, they went to Jerusalem, and they all got circumcised. Thank you, Tara, for laughing at that. That's actually not funny. It wasn't very funny at the 930, but I think that's hysterical. Of course they would see that in this text. Now, they're reading the same text as we are, but think of the whimsy, right? They read history differently than we do. According to another Midrash, while Jonah was inside the first great fish that swallowed him, it told him that it was afraid that it was going to lose its life because it was going to be eaten by Leviathan. Now, Leviathan is the poetic ancient sea creature that shows up in seven different places in the Old Testament. In some cases, they said it was 300 miles long, which is really hysterical because how much food does a 300-mile animal need to eat? Anyway, in this particular tradition, it says that the fish was afraid that it was going to lose its life to Leviathan. So Jonah hatches a plan, and he says, swim right up next to Leviathan, and I'm going to threaten him. And so they do. And he sneaks up next to Leviathan, and Jonah looks at the great sea monster, and he says, I'm going to tie your, your, your tongue around your neck, and all the fish of the sea are going to eat you. And of course, Leviathan has no idea who this prophet is, but he looks down and he notices that he's circumcised. I kid you not. Which could only mean to Leviathan that Jonah was protected by Yahweh, the God. So he flees to a two-day distance, and that sa saves the, the life of the whale and of the prophet. I mean, that's one tradition. And this, of course, made the whale quite happy, or the great fish quite happy. And to repay Jonah for saving its life, he gave him a first-class tour of all the wondrous things in the ocean. This is the crystal ball and the eyes that you could see through, apparently. And of all the things he showed him about the ancient ocean and the depths, what do you think he showed him? He showed him the path across the Red Sea, which was the Reed Sea, but nevertheless. And he shows him the pillars upon which the flat earth rested. Because at this, at this point, the earth was still flat. The water just kind of stayed up on it, and it was held up by the pillars. That's another tradition. Of course, the fish would have to be translucent for this to be, you know, the glass-bottom tour of the ancient ocean. That's another one. 
There's a lot of rabbinical conversation, actually, around the reluctance of the prophet who refused, refused to pray, even inside that first great fish. And one tradition claims that God dealt with this unwillingness of this wily prophet by putting him into another fish, which was a female fish, which was pregnant, which made the inside way less comfortable to inspire him to pray. I mean, I don't know. Y'all can ask the rabbi about it if you want. Anyway, Jonah was chilling rather comfortably in his lazy boy in the first fish. And so the second fish says, God says, give me that prophet because he needs to be uncomfortable so that he prays. And of course, Leviathan backs this up because now we have in conversation Leviathan and two great whales and the voice of God who apparently revealed God's mind to Leviathan to speak on behalf. That's how it goes. Anyway, then I was relieved to read that in the medieval times, there was a Jewish scholar named Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra in the 11th century who argued against any literal interpretation of the book of Jonah whatsoever stating this, experiences of all the prophets except Moses were visions. These were not actualities, and that felt like a relief, which was corrected about 300 years later by another rabbi who said, however, Jonah could have existed in the belly of the fish for three days because, after all, fetuses exist in the, in, in the liquid inside their mothers for nine months, which I guess makes this plausible. I have no idea how this becomes the conversation, but there you go. So what do we have here? What do we have? Well, I think this is allegory. And I think this is an allegory, a very important one, about coming of age. You see, Jonah is on a journey from adolescence to maturity. Friends, all biblical stories, hear me clearly, know this to be your, your true north here. All biblical stories, in one way or the other, illustrate and describe this rough-and-tumble process of growth and development. You can call it discipleship. You can call it rebirth. You can call it whatever you want. All of the scriptural stories somehow tell us that story. And this is what we've been looking at for eight weeks. However you look at this material, whatever you choose to believe or reject, what you are left with, I believe, are stories of coming of age, of learning something new about the nature of God and the nature of the universe, perhaps most importantly, about learning something new about yourself, the nature of you and the nature of me. Learning about yourself, you do understand, dear friend, in South Austin in August in 2022, learning about yourself is the great odyssey. It's the story that's been told a million times over. Self-discovery is the great spiritual process of becoming. To the degree that these stories preserved by the ancients for us, to the degree that they are helpful, all they're really helping us do is know ourselves better because that's what it means to know God better. I hope you see the connection there. I wonder, friend, after all these weeks of talking about these hard things, I wonder if we can just be honest. The beauty of these ancient stories has absolutely nothing to do with facticity or historicity. If we don't let that angle go, we will never see their real value, which I would simply describe as this. These are stories of a God and a small tribe getting to know one another, learning to love one another, experiencing their own version of what, good, of what God was already doing everywhere in every tribe. Somebody tell me you can hear the gospel this morning, even through the story of an ancient fish and a prophet. This is what Jonah was resistant to after all. He was okay with being God's chosen, even God's prophet, as long as God wasn't also choosing those nasty neighbors, the Ninevites. It felt easier, wiser even, to sail away from a God who could dare love those people. Now you fill in the gap of what are those people in your world. Won't be the Ninevites, but it'll be something just as close Jonah tried to get away from this God, and he failed because you know why? Because Nineveh was loved by God too. Every good story has the capacity to tell a universal truth. The question is, can we see it? Can we hear it? Or do we read our stories like children do, insisting that we are the protagonists and everyone else is bad? They're the antagonists. But you see, grown-ups can learn from anything, even the good fortune and blessing 
of the people we most dislike. Why do we still read this old stuff, friends? Why do we still dig here? Because stories of others growing up inspire us to do the same. You see, their God was endlessly determined to love all people back to life and to teach them to do the same. That's the content of all these stories. Here's as tightly as I can say it. There are no people who are not Yahweh's people. That's the bottom line. So I wonder, may I end a summer series telling you what this means to me personally? Thank you for that yes. I'm just going to accept the absence of a no as an affirmation. Maybe this will help you see why I'm still so deeply committed to the Christian tradition. A tradition born entirely and unashamedly in the womb of Jewish cosmology. I wonder. You see, when I was a wee lad, I was the sparkliest of my little circle. Now, it wasn't a big circle. It was an insignificant little circle of religious fundamentalists, but I was the sparkliest of that little crew of people. I, it, was, it was tiny, but it was meaningful to me. And my gifts and my talents, you see, they were celebrated. My dad, after all, was the pastor. He was the leader. And all my stories growing up of identity and purpose and my future featured a God who made me feel safe and centered and talented. You see, I was comfortable, just like Joah was at home. Things made sense. I was in the middle. I was right on that spot marked by the X. But I learned over time, as we all do over time, that mine was just a tiny piece of a much bigger picture and that the God that I loved as a child loved everyone just as much as me. Adulthood has forced me to admit, my friend, that my sense of God, any sense of God at all that holds a center with any people at the center needs to fall away now. There is no center to the God we love. You see, God doesn't have a people. Love has all people. We all shared the same story if only we can see it. If only we can see it. So this final thought, as we wrap this whole process that we've been on. We all learn to do the things that get us celebrated. That's what we learn to do first. We come into a world where all we, are, all we know how to do is do the things that, get, that, that make us the center of things. So by the people, of course, that make us feel safe. By those who matter most to us. This is where every human journey begins. In a bosom, on a lap, at a breast. But it doesn't end there, does it? The world goes up and out from there. Inevitably, you can fight it if you want, but the world will go up and out from that place. So early stories of God that correlate to adolescence feature a protector God, a defender God, a celestial parent who devours whatever threatens us. Of course they do. What else could they articulate? But the story never stops there, does it? It goes up and out from there. And as our world gets bigger and broader, as we grow and develop, we wander further and further from this parental nurture and care, don't we? But God goes with us, and so we discover new aspects about the divine, don't we? Now, where we end up, God is not protector anymore. God is now adventurer and passionate pursuer, and the inspiration to stretch and molt and change seems to be the very unfolding of God itself, until eventually our wanderings take us to the borders of other peoples. And at first we wince and we say to ourselves, God can't possibly love them. They're so different than us. Who are these people anyway? You see, different still feels dangerous until we look a little closer. And if we're honest, and if we're willing to grow up, we can't help but see how God is also their God. That their God loves them too. And if that is true, and if we allow ourselves to come of age, then inevitably our little tribal walls have to fall down. But this will require us to relinquish the mythical center that we were once told we held uniquely. You see, Jonah, like us, was comfortable in his world. In his world, the Hebrews were the protagonists. All other people thereby, by process of elimination, were the antagonists. 
But these are stories from their childhood, friend. These are simple black and white stories. Good people, bad people. But Yahweh's never done building new worlds. This is the lesson of these old stories. From Genesis to Noah, from Babel to Abraham, from Sodom and Gomorrah to Moses and the Exodus, from David to the fish that swallowed a reluctant spokesman. You see, the Jews were not God's only people and neither are we. Stories of other people growing up can help us do the same if we read them, right? They can show us how to be mature, how to let go, how to become full and free and completely alive. Friend, God never had a people. God has all people. And these are the stories of a people discovering that profound truth. It's the whole thing summed up. You can skip the degree. I just gave it to you. So this final, final thought, Jack, that's you. I gotta be clear with my worship leaders or else I'm gonna embarrass them. At nearly 50, which I am, I know, old, I no longer live on the border between familiarity and unknown peoples, at least not physically. I once did, that was part of my story. But now, hear me, and I think this, this might be true for you, borders are borders whether they're internal or they're external. The untrusted, unreached, unacknowledged worlds that I now confront are inside me these days. They are things inside me. And I will take a boat going the opposite direction on any given day rather than face the task of carrying God's love to these new lands within me. Because deep down I know something and Jonah knew it too. Somehow I already know that these areas will be welcomed and forgiven and cherished by love too. But hear me church, it will have to come when I face them eyeball to eyeball. Are these sea monsters? Are these great fish? Or are these great exiled parts of us that we have not yet faced? Well, love will go there too. Here's the thing. And trust me, this is why I live in this space of interfaith, dialogue, and discovery. Every boat goes the same direction eventually. You can get on whatever boat you want, but it will take you in the same place eventually. Now, you can resist for a while, but ultimately growing up is all there is for us. It's all that we have ahead. Finding God around every corner, in every hidden place, under every manhole covered that's labeled do not touch, do not enter. You see, what we discover is that love is there too already. That's what every single one of these stories is ultimately about. Oh, what a big world these stories describe. And every inch of that world is already penetrated by the God of all. Let's have a song.